Hello everyone, my name is Debbie Evans and I'm the nursing correspondent for UK Column. Today, although I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Charlotte Crichton back, I'm also very sad at having to welcome her back under these circumstances. And for those of you that have been watching UK Column um, very, very diligently, as I know many of you have, you'll remember we've interviewed Charlotte before and her colleague Caroline Pover. Charlotte has suffered a vaccine injury as a result of the COVID-19 injection. And she and others have gone to incredible lengths to start their own support group. And in November 2021, the UK COVID vaccine family was founded by Caroline and also by Charlotte and others. And already, I think they have over 800 members. So I really am so, so happy to see Charlotte today. But before we hand over to Charlotte, I just want to say a big shout out and get well soon to the amazing Caroline, who hasn't been too well. And um, we wish you a very, very speedy recovery, Caroline. So without further ado, Charlotte, welcome. And first, my first question to you is, how are you? Hello, Debbie. <laughs> um, I'm getting by. That's probably the best way to describe how I feel um, at the moment. So I'm still undergoing a lot of tests. Um, I still live my life day by day, hour by hour. Um, so one minute my day can be going fairly okay and then the next minute I'm back in bed or having to lay down or um, try to compensate for some of the symptoms that I, I experience and have been experiencing now for nearly 20 months. So it's very up and down. And Charlotte, I know because we've spoken often but you're constantly having to navigate systems that you haven't had to navigate before. Number one, the NHS, not just trying to find um, consultants and help and answers, but also having to navigate other systems like the vaccine damage payment scheme, like the Department of Work and Pensions. And, you know, it's bad enough doing all of these things, able-bodied people having to do all of these things without feeling so ill on top of it. Give us an idea, and I know each day fluctuates for you, but what's a kind of average Charlotte day? What do you wake up to every morning? Okay, so I can I can either sleep very, very well or too well. So some days I will sleep and not be able to wake up very well at all. Uh, I think my blood pressure drops very, very low at night. During the day, it can be very, very high, and at night, it can go very, very low. So it's part of the autonomic nervous system damage that I appear to have. Um, so I start the day either feeling very, very tired still, or just completely like I haven't slept at all. So one or the other. Um, the minute I open my eyes, what I can guarantee is that my whole body feels like it's buzzing. So we get these electric shocks and vibrations through our body, and that's what I wake up to every morning. Um, I've got tinnitus, so it's pulsatile tinnitus. So I don't know if you know much about that, but it 
it kind of goes in time with the beat of your heart and it, it almost sounds like something's landing on your head constantly. Um, so that's what I wake up to. If it's a good day, I don't feel nauseous. Um, if it's a bad day, I feel extremely nauseous as soon as I wake up. And um, the only thing that stops that is mast cell stabilizers that I'm taking um, to dampen the immune system response in the gut. Uh, so, so that's what I wake up to. And then it takes me around an hour and a half to two hours still to be able to get out of bed, um, even to go to the loo, because I get um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So if I get up too quickly in the morning, what happens is um, the mechanisms that would normally pump the blood back from my feet to my heart and my brain aren't working properly so I get extremely dizzy I become tachycardic very quickly so my heart rate can shoot up to 150 160 quite quickly and I start to feel like I'm going to faint and if it's a really bad day I do faint <laughs> so I have to take it very very easily and I, I normally have a pint of electrolytes brought up to me in the morning and two cups of tea that's how much fluid I have to have before I can even get out of bed um, just to kind of compensate for the, the autonomic nervous system dysfunction. So that's the start of my day. And then once I'm up, um, I literally transfer myself from my bedroom to my sofa. Uh, and that in itself is quite a lot of work because I've got to get dressed. <laughs> and that tires me out. Um, and any little thing that I want to do, even just making a cup of tea, I have to sit down and rest in between and put my legs up. Um, I'm currently talking to you laying on my bed because I have to keep my feet up most of the day. Um, otherwise, I go very dizzy even sitting upright. So um, that's how my day starts and then what normally happens is I check in with our support group and I see what's been going on overnight if anyone's got any problems and and talk to people um see what's what's happening what needs to be what who needs helping really um because we quite often have a lot of members that feel worse during the evening and at the night time so um you know, I could wake up to a message saying that I've that someone's been really suffering overnight or they've been taken to hospital or, you know, they, they just need to talk to someone. Um, so I check in with the support group and then we normally um, send emails. So we, we've got emails that we have to check regularly. So and as you know, we've had a campaign now for months, um, a political campaign. So we check on letters and things that are going in and out from MPs and, and where that campaign's running. Um, on top of that, I check in with the global support groups and see how they're doing. Um, there's normally a few messages overnight from different support groups around the world telling us what's going on with them. Um, any news that comes in about vaccine injury around the world, we, we share. So that's quite important. Um, I don't normally eat until about lunchtime, maybe a bit later, because uh, because of the nausea. The only way I can describe it is is having feeling like you've got the worst hangover in the world for nearly two years. That's the feeling that it is every day. And depending 
on the severity, it can either leave you bed bound or or able to do a few things. So, um, so I don't eat until about lunchtime because eating does actually make me feel worse. Um, and I have to take medication before I eat, otherwise I react to the food. Um, as soon as I eat, I become tachycardic. Um, so that's that's my lunchtime. And then after lunch, um, I check in with a group again. There's there's work always needs to be done with with a support group and then I have some dinner when Ian gets home and I normally have a bath to try and uh, relieve some of the nerve pain that I get that comes from my feet to my legs and my hands and arms because it, it's a shooting nerve pain it's it's hard to describe um it's not the normal type of nerve pain that you would imagine it's it shoots up and down um, so if I have a bath, it does relieve it for a little while. But a bath makes me tachycardic as well. So the heat dilates the blood vessels. And when I get out of the bath, I then have to lay down for an hour. And by then, it's normally about 6 p.m. in the evening. And I just go to bed because there's no point being up anymore. <laughs> so that that's my day, really. I mean, honestly... You know, Charlotte, I think it's really important for people listening and and watching to realise that these all of these conditions that you're all suffering are extremely unstable and, and, and unpredictable. So you're never going to know how you feel from one day to the next. That is exactly how you're living. And yet, for you, you're not just having to deal with that, which is unthinkable and unimaginable. I don't know how I would cope on a day-to-day -day basis, feeling physically that ill and with the psychological effects of, of the illness as well and the frustrations, the anxiety and the ripple effects that it brings to all of the families. But having to micromanage all of these systems and then run a support group. And I think it's really important that we tell people that, you know, you, you're, you had an AstraZeneca injection and you are now literally looking after over 800 people that have joined your group and you are hearing the most traumatic stories and i know that you know sadly very sadly you've you have lost one of your members of the group um somebody committed suicide in august 2022 and i know that there are other people in your group that are struggling to make ends meet because they've lost their jobs, their livelihoods, their businesses, and some um, may be even at risk of losing their homes. And yet I know, Charlotte, that you're actually having to spend a huge amount of money to try and access any help for you and as other members are doing. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so far I've spent, um just over £10,000 um, going to private consultants, having private tests, because um, the NHS pathway, A, was too slow. So my urgent referrals last year were three, three and a half months after it all started. So I wasn't going to get an MRI until three months later, and I was going numb gradually from the feet up. Um, and secondly, because I, I was treated quite poorly um, last year by a, when I got admitted to hospital, I was treated quite poorly by a neurologist in the hospital. And um, 
I just thought, you know, I've got money. I've always been told by my family, your health is more important than money. And I just thought, I'm just going to spend my savings on on my health, which is what I have done. I'm completely broke now. And um, a lot of our members have done the same. So the ones that were fortunate enough to have savings have spent their savings on on private appointments and tests and, and different consultants. Um, the ones that haven't had any money and haven't had savings, some have still had to wait nearly a year to see a consultant, only to be told they don't know what to do. They don't know how to help them. Um, they'll run a few tests, but that's it. Um, vaccine damage is too new and they don't know what to do with people. Um, and that's that's a bit, you know, that's one of the best case scenarios. Uh, the worst case scenarios, um, an example recently, one of our members, she was having seizures. Um, she was actually coughing up clots. Um, she had clots coming out of her nose and her hands were turning blue. And she went to see her neurologist and she had a seizure in his office. And he said that it was um, functional neurological disorder and um, wasn't physiological. It was a mental um, condition. Later that evening, um, her husband sent me pictures of how she deteriorated. And I said, get her to the hospital now. Um, they did. And um, she's she's been diagnosed with um, pulmonary emboli on her lungs. She's got pleurisy, pneumonia. Um, she's got multiple conditions that are life threatening. The consultant that she eventually saw uh, privately now has said that if she hadn't have gone into hospital, she wouldn't be here by Christmas. Wow. I mean, just wow. There's so much to unpack here, Charlotte. Um, but one thing that I want to go back to is the purpose of you setting up the group. And the purpose, and, and please, we need to remember, this is an unfunded group. You don't get funded by anybody, which I think, honestly, is absolutely shocking. So maybe at UK Column, we can help you to raise more awareness so that people realise that you are an unfunded group and that you're getting very, very little support. And actually what many of you need is psychological support um, and support to be able to move forward. But the, the whole purpose of you setting up the group wasn't to apportion blame to anybody, was it? It wasn't to get into any political wrangles or any kind of debates. It was really just to say, help, SOS, we are here, we are sick. It has happened after the injection. Now please help us and restore our lives back to what they were prior to us having the adverse reaction. Um, Charlotte, have you found this difficult to sort of stay away from the whole political arena? Because I know that there was an all parliamentary group um, meeting with Sir Christopher Choke booked, and I think that was booked in September. But then the Queen died um, and we had a, well, first of all, there was a rail strike, which posed a lot of problems for people getting, getting there. And then on top of that, the Queen died. So everything, everything stopped. Now you've got another date for an all parliamentary group coming up this week, I believe. But I'm, I'm slightly concerned that the previous group 
was very much you you'd you'd had time to arrange i think it was 60 people 60 of your group that were going to attend um and plenty of people that were going to attend to support you as vaccine injured however now because everything's been stopped and started again something's been arranged at very short notice with perhaps not you guys at the center of attention can you tell us where you are with the latest all-parliamentary all group and the work that you've been doing with Sir Christopher Chope, the amazing work, campaigning work that you've been doing with Sir Christopher Chope? Yeah, of course. So back in, I think it was February um, this year, Caroline and I started thinking about a campaign. So um, Caroline spoke to um, Olivia Price, I don't know if you know much about Olivia Price, but she spoke to her to see how she set up her campaign. Um, Olivia Price was part of the overhaul of the vaccine damage payment scheme. So she actually campaigned 20 odd years ago, I believe. Well, that's when she started um, and she has an MBE. But if you Google her, you won't find much on her, funnily enough. Um, but she's an amazing woman. So Caroline based a lot of our campaign on that. Um, it comprises or comprised of writing to each member's individual MP as a constituent. So not a template, not um, a leaflet. It was an individual letter written by Caroline. And these letters took around half an hour each time, very labor intensive. And so far, uh, we have another, another member that's doing it with her, Brian as well, Brian's amazing. So far we've sent 216 letters to MPs individually. And we have 67 now MPs that are supportive of us and our cause, cause and values. Um, however, as you've rightly said, the APPG was set up for September, got postponed. In September, we had 70 members that were attending. We'd booked hotels. Um, we had transport arranged because obviously the train strike, so we had to quickly rearrange transport. And then it all, the day before or the day before that, it just all came to a halt, obviously, because the Queen passed away. Um, so we were told it would be re rearranged. So we took our foot off the pedal for a little while because it was it's it's very, very hard work to organise 70 people um, to get that far. I mean, some are coming as far away as Scotland, Wales. You know, we, we've got a lot of travelling, very sick people, as you know, um, and very still still with unstable conditions. So um, last Wednesday, I believe or Thursday, it might have been th Wednesday actually, um, I got a letter from Sir Chope's office with a new invitation for this Thursday. And um, it's it's just been too short notice for us. You know, we can't get that many um, ill people in one place um, at that time. So in, in this short amount of time anyway, uh, we do have things that we had ready and in, in preparation for the, the original meeting. Um, however, this, this APPG looks completely focused on Alcine Malhotra's new paper, which um, isn't a bad thing. 
uh, per se, but um, it does take the focus off of what vaccine injured people need and bereaved vaccine, you know, people that are bereaved from the vaccine as well. We, we need to be put at the forefront of this. Um, the question of safety is a bigger question, one that could have its own APPG altogether, um, and it deserves its own APPG. But however, our needs need to be at the forefront when looking at the other issues around support for vaccine injured people and adverse reactions in general to vaccines. So um, it, I don't think it will be quite as productive as what we first thought it would be. However, like I said, our group is absolutely amazing. Um, I do know there's another group out there called Vaccine Injured Bereaved, and they're amazing too. And um, I'm sure that between us, we have enough supportive MPs that are willing to do something with us anyway. So um, we're going along. We've probably got about 15 of us going now. So a small number. And I think, you know, we've spoken about the previous APG where you there were literally 70 very, very sick. And as you've quite rightly said just then, unstable. All of these people have different symptoms. They have different conditions and they could react differently on any one day. So I said to you at the time, didn't I, the closest hospital to uh, the Palace of Westminster is St Thomas's. Um, and if somebody were to suggest to empty two full wards, acute wards of St Thomas's and wheel them all across to the Palace of Westminster, you'd think that you'd, you'd lost your marbles, quite honestly. But that is indeed what was being planned. And of course, now you can't plan that. And I know that, you know, Charlotte, you have gone to, I, I can't begin to tell people the amount of hours and the amount of work and the amount of research and the amount of support that you give to other people. And the the pack I know that you, you've developed to, to give to people at the APG with all of your aims, the, the, the symptoms, your wants, your needs has been done so professionally with such diligence and such research. It really is. It's, I mean, I have to say it's exemplary. And, you know, one of these things is that every, every single one of you seems to have different symptoms. And this is why the doctors are scratching their heads and saying, well, it's a bit of this, it's a bit of that, but we can't put our finger on it. Um, how are people coping with that? And what is the significance, Charlotte, of not having a definitive diagnosis? Because nobody seems to quite know what label to attach to. How does that affect you in everyday life to not have a diagnosis? Well, as I say, I've spent a lot of money, so I say I'm fairly lucky that I've got multiple diagnoses, including um, adverse reaction to a COVID vaccine on my on my medical records and an exemption now. Um, however, I do know that for a lot of people on the support group, um, it's awful to be this ill and not know why. And a lot of the things we're finding that it was wrong with people are very specialised conditions. Um, so things like CIDP, which is chronic inflammatory demyelating polyneuropathy. So it's um, it's very specialised. You know, we've got people with 
dysautonomia, which is the autonomic nervous system, which is damaged and gastroparesis. I mean, I'd never heard of gastroparesis until until I started this support group. And we have members that the nerves to their stomach aren't working properly, so they have to be tube fed. Um, it's almost a paralysis of the stomach muscles, um, neurogenic bladder. People's bladders don't work anymore because the nerves are, are not working and damaged. Um, myocarditis, pericarditis, of course, um, and a lot of arrhythmias, a lot of cardiac arrhythmias. Um, unfortunately, a lot of strokes and heart attacks and things like that as well. And, and small fibre neuropathy. I'd never heard of small fibre neuropathy before this, but um, that's damage to the small nerve fibres. They're the sensory nerves. Um, and it can give you pain like burning pain. So you feel like you're sunburnt all over or tingling, extreme pins and needles, those sorts of things. Um, and it means that you don't sweat properly as well, because quite often the autonomic nerve fibres control your sweat where you sweat so you sweat in very odd patches and sometimes you don't sweat at all and sometimes too much and and it can affect your stomach as well and, and the heart small fiber neuropathy um in other countries such as america they're actually being diagnosed with small fiber neuropathies from the vaccine and they're getting treatment for it called um ivig <clears throat> but in, in the UK, they don't use IVIG for it. They just give pain relief. So um, there's a lot, of, a lot of things and diagnoses that people are getting that, um, that, are, that are abnormal. They're, you know, they're not ones you've heard of before. Um, and to, do, to get those diagnoses, you have to go to specialist consultants. You know, your average neurologists might not have much knowledge of small fibre neuropathy or gastroparesis and these are all specialists that you've got to hunt out and find and and talk to each other to try and find them um, to get these diagnoses and have the money and an average appointment with a with a specialist costs between 250 to 500 pounds and then if they want you to have tests you know um i was quoted £1,200 for one set of blood tests that, that someone wanted to run. So it all adds up. <laughs> um, and diagnosis mean a lot because you imagine, you know, one minute you're fit and healthy and life is normal. And the next minute you can't get out of bed for months. You can't look after your children. You can't eat properly. You can't sleep properly. Um, that does a lot to your mental health if you don't have a diagnosis, if people are telling you they can't find anything wrong with you and they don't know what's happening. So mentally, it has a big impact um, actually having a diagnosis. It can it can really help people to have that. And, you know, you raise such an interesting point there. And I think it's really important that we all remember that all of you now, after two years of going through all of this nightmare, you have all become experts by experience. You know, you are the experts now. But what I want to explain to those of you listening is that there's something called an ICD-11 code. Um, and everybody with a vaccine injury is, from where I'm sitting anyway, Charlotte, and we can talk about this, but is that you're effectively 
locked out of a system, or at least some of you are, many of you are, and I want to come on to the MHRA and the vaccine damage payment scheme in a, in a minute, but many of you are locked out because you simply don't have a code. You know, it's a code. And for people that don't know what ICD is, ICD is the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems. So you'll obviously, so you'll often hear people say ICD-10 or ICD-11, as we now have it. Now, this means that clinical terms are coded. So everything is, has got its own code so that people can record it, they can analyze it, they compare it. You look at mortality and morbidity statistics. Now, what I found very interesting was that there is an ICD-11 code for unvaccinated for COVID-19. So if you're unvaccinated, you immediately get a code allocated to you, which is Z28.310. If you're partially vaccinated, you get a code as well, which is Z28.311. If under you've got any other reason for being under immunized, you get a further code, which is Z28.39. Now, these Z codes are used for tracking. What I want to explain to people is there is no code for vaccine injured. And I know that that's one of the things, Charlotte, that your group and you want to highlight to the APG, that you don't have a code. And as such, you're locked out of a system, unable to get any help, especially from the NHS. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no nice guidelines for a vaccine adverse reaction. There's no code. So it when it, when you see a doctor or consultant, they will tap in what your diagnosis is and come up with a treatment plan or come up with a, a way forward. Um, with us, there's nothing. Um, so it's managing symptoms only. And like you say, it's not recorded properly. Um, what we're finding as well, I mean, I don't know if anyone or any of your viewers have ever submitted a yellow card report, but a lot of the symptoms they will put singularly on it. So, for example, I could say that I'm busy as one of my symptoms, but if I said to you, I'm so dizzy, I haven't been able to get out of bed for two months, that's a different dizzy to just feeling a little bit dizzy. <laughs> so the, the, the coding needs to be there for the safety signals to be available as well. And it's not there. Well, you very, very beautifully dovetailed that straight into the MHRA, which is where I want to go next, because you know that we've been campaigning for, well, over 18 months now, nearly two years, um, for, the, for some answers from the MHRA. And we've been obfuscated and stonewalled and ignored, although I have now had an, a complaint upheld by the MHRA, not to say that that helped. MHRA are not looking at the yellow cards as, as we believe they should be, because I, I'm thinking that from... From someone that submits a yellow card, and I haven't myself, so presumably when you submit a yellow card, you think you're going to get some kind of help. I mean, what is 
what is your expectation um, when you submit a yellow card, Charlotte? What, what do people expect to happen after that, which now they're finding isn't happening? What do you need to happen? So, so when I submitted my yellow card, I actually thought I'd get a knock at the door. I thought someone would want to research why I'd had a reaction. And um, it was exactly the opposite. Um, I got an email back with a reference number. Thank you for reporting. And that was that. And generally, that's what happens. Very rarely, and, and I hate to use rare because they use it against us all the time, but um, very rarely, one of our members will get a form, an extra form to fill out, and we don't quite know what that is. But typically, we're told that if you suffer an adverse reaction, what you do is you submit a yellow card report as if that's going to fix everything. You're going to get help. And, and it's not. It's just a reporting system. Nothing else happens. And what we've found on the group is that some people's yellow card reports go missing. Um, we've now actually been talking to some of the American groups who are finding their VAERS numbers are going missing as well. So their VAERS data is also going missing. Um, when it's queried, sometimes it reappears again. <laughs> um, and sometimes a little bit of extra information appears as well. <laughs> So <laughs> um, we recently had one of our members um, ask for their yellow card information and they got back a document with a little bit of extra annotation from AstraZeneca, which was, um, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that probably it was a bit shocking because I know that we've discussed this before and it seems as though information is, is being received by those submitting yellow cards that perhaps shouldn't have been received. And actually that brings me on, Charlotte, because you know your adverse reaction is as a result of AstraZeneca. Um, there are many with adverse reactions from Pfizer and Moderna, Novavax and all of them. Um, have you had any contact with AstraZeneca or has anybody in your group had any any kind of answers from AstraZeneca at all? Because I know some people submit a report direct to the manufacturer as well as through to the yellow card. So what kind of contact and help and support and advice have you had from AstraZeneca? Uh, AstraZeneca haven't contacted me at all. And as far as I'm aware, no one on the group has been contacted directly at the first point by AstraZeneca. Um, I contacted AstraZeneca at the same time as my yellow card report, and I reported that I'd had an adverse reaction. By law, I believe they're obliged to collect that data um, and process it. So um, I reported everything that happened to me and I got a form back. They send you to an internal server at that point and the form's on there. So you fill it out and you give them permission to talk to your GP. Um, so I did this and then several months later, I got a message back saying, sorry, we can't get hold of your GP. We've tried, we can't get hold of your GP. So I left it for a bit because I was, um, you know, it's very difficult to do all this when you're unwell. So I left it for a bit and then I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to I'm not going to let that stay, stay that 
that way. So I uh, I emailed them again and I said, look, where's what's happening here? Have you managed to get a hold of my GP yet? No, we'll send you another form. OK, so I go back to their internal server. I send I fill out their form again and I get exactly the same message back a few weeks later. Sorry, we're unable to contact your GP. And by now I'm talking to other people who are contacting AstraZeneca and they're getting the same message. So I'm thinking, I, I know GPs are quite hard to get hold of at the moment, but um, there, there are ways, you know. So um, this has happened, I believe, four times now in my case. I mean, it's unthinkable what you guys are all having to go through. And, you know, as, as you know, on the column, we exposed Dame June Rain um, in a, a recent lecture, an homage to Sir Alistair Breckenridge, where she actually, and she didn't even let it slip, you know, this isn't, wasn't even a mistake that she made in, in saying something that perhaps she shouldn't have done. She actually admitted that the MHRA were expecting 100,000 serious adverse reports as a result of the COVID-19 injection, 100,000. But then she announced, oh, but we've had over 400,000, so I can't possibly allocate somebody to each of these reports. Although we know that um, Alison Cave, the chief safety officer, has now admitted that apparently there are 40 scientists looking at the yellow cards that Baroness Cumberledge who wrote the do no harm report seemed to indicate we're going in the bin. So we're not quite sure what's going on with the yellow cards. But what we do know is that they were expecting 100,000 serious adverse reactions. And I know I, I've asked Dame June Rain, and I know you and your group have asked Dame June Rain. Have you had any answers, Charlotte, to the question that you posed and, and I would like to just bring in and, and give you a quick plug here because you've written the most amazing articles for Conservative Woman. And I would really, uh, I would say to everybody, go and have a look at uh, Conservative Woman and the articles by Charlotte about the fact that 800 people are being ignored, literally ignored, and her plea to Dame June Rain. So have you had an answer to what mechanism is in place for people, for the 100,000 serious adverse reports that uh, you were expecting Dame June Rain? No, not really. Um, in my first letter to, to June Rain herself, I even offered that our group work with the MHRA so that they can research us, study us, ask us where things have gone wrong so that they can improve it for the future for people. And um, that was completely ignored. I got a reply back from Rebecca in customer service from the MHRA, um, dated wrongly. So the email I received was last week, but it was dated June, I believe. Um, so I, I don't know why it was dated June, um, but that that would seem that they'd sent it a few weeks after I'd written to, to June Rain. But I obviously only received it last week. Um, and that the whole reply, which you can read in the article, is just telling me that I can report by the yellow card, that the um this the Human Medicines Commission um have got robust things in place for us and blah blah blah, really. Nothing practical, nothing practical at all. 
and um i think the reason the reason why i'm upset is because there we are having gone through all of this having had life-changing reactions and all of our families been upturned overnight um and we're offering to help the mhra improve their services and all we get back is a generic reply from someone in customer services i don't think it's good enough it's certainly not good enough and you know it's not just the mhra that you seem to be having trouble um getting any answers from is it charlotte because i know that we've both been very active in trying to locate the patient safety commissioner and the patient safety commissioner dr henrietta hughes was appointed as a result of the Cumberledge report, do no harm. And she herself said that she found the report traumatic um, and having to listen to patients' experiences going through adverse reactions was traumatic and harrowing. And that she was positioned there to do exactly what you want her to do, which is to listen to you, to listen, because clearly, the MHRA are just a shell organization. Their conflicts of interest, I mean, we won't even start to go into that, but their conflicts of interest are huge. But have you had any contact with the Patient Safety Commissioner that was appointed, after all, back in July? No, no, we haven't been approached by anyone from the government. I mean, I think that pretty much says it all. And you know, Charlotte, I'm looking at the time and I know that, you know, long interviews are not an option for you. And I know that we agreed to keep this as fairly brief as possible. So before I hand over to you for the last word, because I really do believe that you need the last word. And, and to everybody listening, we need to keep the vaccine injured right at the top of the news, because every single day I see something else that is just bringing you down to the bottom of the pile, even if it's the MHRA now not publishing um, vaccine serious adverse reactions weekly data, they're now publishing it monthly. But you know, when you sent me your pack of information, um, a couple of things, well, all of it is amazing. I mean, it's really well produced, so congratulations and well done to everyone that's done that. But I was struck by some of the comments, some of your groups, uh, some of your group members made. Um, and here's just a couple to give people an idea of what you, and as a vaccine injured person, have to put up with every day. I feel like I've been robbed of myself, mentally and physically. I've struggled for the past 18 months. My world has got smaller. Not only has my health declined, but I'm also completely isolated. Life is an uncontrollable descent where I'm emotionally drained physically exhausted and financially broken with nowhere to turn. I've spent £9,000 and counting on medical care. That doesn't include all the private and NHS prescriptions. And I still feel like I'm dying every day. I've been too unwell to fill out the forms for benefits. Charlotte, those are just three comments from three of your group you have 800. I, I know that your time is precious because you are having to go to appointments, campaign, um, navigate political systems, 
um, and run a family and walk dogs as well. So the fact that you have taken time to speak to UK Column, I'm incredibly grateful because um, the information that you have and the work that you're doing is simply phenomenal. But I want to hand over to you, Charlotte, for the last word and to, to tell people and to ask people what A, your group needs and wants now, how we can help you today. And a message for everybody out there that's listening, um, what can they do and what message would you like to finish with? Charlotte, thank you and God bless to all of you. Thanks, Debbie. Um, what we really need is everyone to write to these people. So we need you all to pick up your pens and paper or email and write to your MPs, write to the MHRA, write to all of these people that are failing us because, as Debbie says, there's 800 people at least that I know of that are being failed. And then secondly, just, just be kind. Um, I think we've got in this mess because, because people are being unkind to each other. And there, there may be a few people that are greedy and not very nice, but the majority of us are just trying to do the best in life, aren't we? So just be kind to other people and appreciate that their opinion might be different from yours or it might be something that you've never experienced before, but that doesn't mean you should dismiss them. So be kind.